great truth represented there, redeemed, hope we love to proclaim it, his child and forever I am. Stands out to me singing, I've shared this with you before, probably been a while, um, I still have vivid memories 20 years ago now of a group of guys from Pacific Garden Mission singing that song with a little more energy than we sang it this evening um, because their lives have been so impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, may not have been as uh, musically right or whatever as, you know, all the notes getting hit uh, with the precision that some of you hit them, not me, um, but there was a lot of heart and energy driving, and it just stands out in my mind, so when I sing that song, I find myself going, so Dan, can you say and sing this song, uh, really meaning what you're singing? It's a good challenge for me. Got a question for you. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 8, so if you want to turn there, you can. And uh, often when I ask you questions, um, if it's not Wednesday night, I'm like, I just want you to think about this one. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Um, Tonight I'm going to put you on the spot. Why not? We've been talking about grace now for several weeks, a couple months, really few months, and uh, we've talked about different actions of grace, um, some of which we receive, some of which we actually seek to live differently because of. And uh, you don't have to use the text that we've covered. Uh, You certainly don't have to use the words that I have used. Um, But I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the actions of grace within Scripture. Anything come to mind of what grace does? Mike? Yep. God's grace is enough. Um, I don't plan to belabor too much tonight unless I get stuck somewhere, but uh, think about that verse this morning that we just briefly touched on, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. It doesn't matter, it's in all things so that you would have sufficient grace. And that theme comes up later in 2 Corinthians 12. We may get there here very shortly. Becky. Yeah, grace saves. So grace is sufficient, grace saves. You guys are well on your way to writing an outline to speak. We can just use S's tonight. What else? I'm coming over here. Don. Yeah, grace serves. Good. You don't have to keep the trend up, just so there's no pressure here. It does sanctify, too, if you want to keep going. Okay, that was Titus chapter 2, 9 to 11. That's been a long time ago. Bill. Yeah, it's unearned. Good. Unmerited. What else? We're only scratching the surface, so I'm going to keep the pressure on you. Jared. Yeah, it grows you, and as you learn more about God, you grow in grace. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yep, good. What else? Yeah, it humbles. And as we are humbled, we receive more grace. First Peter 5, I uh, haven't decided yet exactly what the Lord has for us, but uh, we may go to James 4 at some point in the weeks ahead because James 4 makes that same point just a slightly different way. We've already seen it in 1 Peter 5. What else? Grace justifies. We've looked at that. Grace gives peace. Grace gives everlasting life, an eternal inheritance. Grace changes your words. That wasn't too long ago. 
right? No corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good of the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearer. Or Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be seasoned with salt, and it gives grace there as well. We could say grace gives. That might be a novel thought. Haven't touched that one at all today, right? That's where we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this evening. Uh, I should have brought it with me and asking you that question. I didn't, but I have on my desk a little post-it note where I've just been writing grace and verbs. Like grace enables and grace equips and grace energizes, grace gifts, right? We saw that one already. Uh, man, there's all kinds of ways that God has favored us and helps us by his grace. And the theme we're looking at in God's word today is the idea that grace motivates generous giving. Grace motivates generous giving. Uh, for those who've just joined us this evening, this morning we started out in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, looking at the exemplary giving of other believers. And we started into the context saying, here's the situation uh, behind this passage where giving is being challenged to say there's these needy believers in Jerusalem due to a famine that's taken place. And so believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia, which would include Corinth, are being challenged, give to this need and help. That was the context. From that time then, we went to, secondly, the characteristics of grace, or how does this show up in giving? And we looked at six characteristics of grace. We've seen so far that their giving was circumstantially illogical. It didn't make sense because they were in a deep trial of affliction. It was abundantly joyful, unexpectedly bountiful, deeply sacrificial, cheerfully volitional, and uniquely relational because of this partnership or this fellowship that they have in giving. And now tonight we come to number seven. It's the last one before we get to another section, all right? But seventh, we want to look at one more characteristic of grace in verse five before we move on. Seventhly, we see their giving was devoutly spiritual. We might also say worshipful, either word is fine, but their, given, their giving was driven by the right priority, we could say. It was a spiritual endeavor for them. This wasn't just simply a financial thing or a duty thing. Uh, it was a God spirit, a, a worshipful thing. Verse 5, and this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. In essence, if we were to summarize, Paul's saying their giving was a direct result of their personal devotion to God. First, they committed themselves to God. It wasn't like, well, you know what, they just had this affinity naturally to the believers at Jerusalem, and so because of that, their giving, their giving is driven by the fact that they're connected to God, and it is through that relationship and God's direction in that relationship that they choose to give. We see this time and time again in Scripture, that things rightly done, Scripture rightly obeyed, is not simply a matter of us saying, well, I'm going to do this because I think I need to or because I want to benefit them, but it's a direct result of what's my rapport with God? What's my relationship with Him like? We could say it this way, we don't, when we're committed to God, if, if He calls us to believe, we believe. If He calls us to obey, we obey. If He calls us to serve, we serve. If He calls us to give, we give. Because we have committed ourselves and say, I will follow him however he leads. I was thinking in study this week of the familiar text in Isaiah 6 where uh, Isaiah sees a vision of God, right? He's high and lifted up and the angels are there and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. 
And Isaiah, having that right view of God, is like, I need to be right with this one. I am not. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's convicted of his sin. And there, God cleanses his, him from his sin as an angel takes a coal from the, off, the, off the altar and touches his lips. But then being right with God, what's Isaiah's response? The Lord's like, who will go for us? And he's like, I will. Like, because I'm committed to God, if there's a need, God, I'm there. I'll help. And I think we see an idea here related to giving that Paul says, look, this wasn't on the basis of our relationship with them or their relationship to the believers in Jerusalem. They gave themselves to God, and as a result, they'll do as he directs. Think of the familiar teaching of Jesus. I referenced it briefly this morning, although we did not look at it. The familiar teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. There's that whole section in Matthew 6 where they're wrestling through, hey, don't take any thought for what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Like God will provide for you. He takes care of the lilies of the field. He takes care of the birds of the air. God will take care of you. You don't have to worry like, well, you know what? I, I, I don't know that my needs are going to be met or that I'm going to have the latest and greatest. Like, it's okay. God knows what you need. He will provide. But bookended on either section of that are some verses that I think are really helpful to us in this text, in, in uh, considering 2 Corinthians 8. Right before that whole section about don't take any thought, don't take any thought, the words of Jesus say this in Matthew 6, 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's simply reminding us that what we use our funds for evidences where our heart is at. We, you hear it said all the time that you know, expenses or expenditures reflect your priorities. Like, here's what I want to give to. Here's what I want to use what God has entrusted me for. And we're told by Jesus there, hey, don't worry about living for everything here and now. Do, do, we, do we have a biblical responsibilities we talked about briefly this morning to steward those things, to provide? Yes, but ultimately we do so with a trust in God. And so at the end of that section, that same section of Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. My, your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. So he reduces it to one instruction, which is helpful. He says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Like, commit to pursuing God, commit to doing what meets his standard, and God will provide for you according to the way that he sees fit. Again, we come to the Corinthian believers, and Paul very directly says they first gave themselves to the Lord before following through and giving the gift that's been mentioned here. So we spent the bulk of our time today looking at this exemplary giving of other believers, particularly the Macedonian believers. Most recently, we've looked at these seven characteristics of grace. Secondly, now, as we finish out the exemplary giving of the believers, let's look at the challenge to give. 
Having looked at the context, having looked at the uh, characteristics of grace, let's look at the challenge to give in verses 6 through 8. We can summarize verses 6 and 7 saying the challenge to give is about abounding in grace. Verse 6, insomuch we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Again, keep in mind what Paul said in verse 1. We want you to know about, we want you to wit the grace of God on these Macedonian believers. And now as he begins to make direct challenge to the Corinthian believers, he's like, we've sent Titus to you so that we would see God's grace work, at this, work in your midst as well. He's not putting parameters on, here's exactly what that looks like. But you said you were interested in giving. He wrote them in his first letter about giving. We read that this morning, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3. And now he's saying, let's see God's grace at work in you, end of verse 6. But notice verse 7. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love toward to us, See that ye abound in this grace also. There's much to be commended about the Corinthian believers. They're a gifted group of believers. In fact, you can think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul details all these different gifts that they have. And um, they've been gifted in many ways. Not just gifted, but you notice even their disposition. He's like, you actually abound even in love for us. Paul does have things that he can look at and commend them for and go, uh, it's clear God has worked in you. Look at all these different ways. You've been diligent. You've been gifted. You are loving. God's favored you very highly. But then he says, there's another grace yet to grow in. It's like, see that you abound in this grace also. May God's grace, we could say, overflow in their giving as well. Not just the fact that they care and they love and they sacrifice that way. Not just the fact that they're gifted and they're speaking in their faith and in other spiritual gifts. Uh, but to say, would you also abound in the grace of giving? I don't know about you, maybe I'm just reading too much of my own experience. Um, but there's points in life where I find it easy. I think we find it easy. To look at something, but like, you know, I'm working on growing there, and I'm trying to grow there, and, and you know, I can't do everything, right? Where it's like, well, you know, that's not really my gift. We talked about that one before. You see, none of those excuses work when we look at Paul's instruction here. He's like, yes, you, God's grace has worked in you powerfully in all these different areas, but see to it that God's enablement God's favor abounds in you this way as also. We might say it this way, nothing is off limits from the impact of grace. Grace shapes the way that I give of my time. We've already talked about this one, but grace shapes the way that I use my words, or should shape the way that I use my words. Probably far too often does not. But nothing's off limit, not my time, not my words, not my talents, possessions, certainly in context here, not just possessions, but actual finances and money. To go, God's grace impacts my use of all of those things. So I wonder how that shows up in our lives this week to go, 
God, I want your grace to abound in me. Maybe, maybe you got the giving one down, but read through the rest of the list. Is it true in love? Is it true in the exercise of a spiritual gift? Or maybe it is the giving one. He says, abound in grace. Let it be true in all of these different areas. Don't leave one out. But then he also says the challenge to give is not just about abounding in grace. It's about demonstrating genuine love, verse 8. It's about demonstrating genuine love. He says, I speak not by commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. I think it's important that we catch this. In fact, in just a couple of verses, Paul's going to make the same point again. Okay, so he's going to say it twice in about three verses here. Notice he said in verse 8, I speak not by commandment. Paul's an apostle. In writing, he's under inspiration. He has the authority to issue commands. But here he's like, I'm not commanding you. I want this to be driven by your heart. I think you well understand what it's like, maybe as a parent or a teacher or working with someone. It's like, I don't want to have to tell you, here's what you need to do. I want you to want to. Isn't there a dramatic difference? Like, when you tell someone, you have to, and like, okay. Paul's like, look, I'm not telling you, I'm not commanding you to do this. But because of what others have done, I want to demonstrate that your love is sincere. It's genuine. It's, It's the real deal. We've talked about it before. My understanding of the etymology of the Latin word for sincere means without wax. The idea was that, you know, broken pots would occasionally get filled with wax to put them back together. We'd use super glue today. And then they'd be painted on the outside and go, hey, it's good. You'd hold it up to the light and be like, this isn't good. You put anything hot in this, the wax melts right out. This is not sincere. Sincere means without wax. It's it's genuine. It's the real thing. It'll work. It's functional. Paul's saying, hey, look, I want to prove that your love is a real thing. It's not some kind of backhanded self-interest. It's that you just care for these believers. So the challenge to give is issued as about abounding in grace, but demonstrating genuine love. We said it this way this morning. We'll say it a couple times more this evening, that this text is telling us that when grace motivates our giving, it is not about guilt, right? Generous giving happens by grace, not guilt. And so Paul is saying to them here, do this because you love. In fact, if you look at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 24, he repeats the thought. He says there, wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and our boasting on your behalf. We told them that you care. We know that you care. He told them uh, the previous verse in verse 7 that they abound in love. So let it be shown that you do care and that you do love. I've alluded to this this morning, but I'll ask you to consider it again. Isn't it odd, at least according to sometimes the way we think, which is a bad lens, we'll use it. Isn't it odd? But he says, prove the sincerity of your love for these believers in Jerusalem. Why? They don't know him. Why care? They're way over there. Right? I mean, and they're not even interconnected like our world is today. Like, this is way distant. It's not like, hey, we're just going to hop on the plane. We'll be there shortly. 
We can do the little video call thing. We can get pictures sent by email. We can have a sense of connection. I mean, we're going to get a prayer report, right? It's like, you don't know them, but go ahead and give to prove the sincerity of your love. It truly is an act of Christian love. No expectation of anything in return, just looking to help someone else at their own sacrificial cost. Our understanding of that kind of giving and the grace that it represents is dramatically highlighted by the very next verse. Prove your love, and in order to understand the depths of that grace, look at where he goes next. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, for our sakes, he became poor. And so we move from the exemplary giving of other believers Secondly, to the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ. The extravagant grace of Jesus Christ. It says, here's the one who is our Lord, Jesus Christ. He's our master, right? That's that idea of Lord. He's the one that we are subservient to. And it makes sense when we read the description that's given to go, he's rich. He is because he made it all. Like, all of it. I was thinking this week about Uh, You know, you hear these news articles, I don't know who it is at this point, this person's the richest person in the world, this person, you've got these, um, you know, foreign investors, you've got these U.S. entrepreneurs, and, you know, is it Elon Musk, or is it Jeff Bezos, or Bill Gates, or who, I, I don't know, but it's like, all these people who've accomplished incredible things, and, you know, how much are they going to give away, and are they not going to give away, and all that kind of stuff, like, we realize when we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, He owns everything. Like, the wealth does not compare. And it's not just, like, limited to, like, our little world, right? It kind of blows my mind to think, he owns galaxies. I don't know anybody that's bought one of those yet. Like, we're trying to send rockets into outer space. And he's like, keep going, I own beyond that. And the next yard, and the next yard, and the next yard. Just keep going, he owns it all. And the one who spoke that all into existence, who transcends it all, becomes a person, becomes part of creation. He was rich, and yet for our sakes, he became poor. I mean, it calls to mind the familiar words of that text in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, not robbery at all to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. And again, we kind of run past the phrase, but was made in the likeness of man, limited like you and I. Even though he was rich, he made it all, he owns it all. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what he gave for us. That kind of giving is what makes our giving easy because the ratio doesn't really compare. The amount of grace given is astounding. The one who is our Lord is our Jesus. He is our Savior because God promised him as Christ. Again, when you think about what he gave, he he knew, while he was rich, he knew the limitations of infancy again. 
became a man. He, he was born. He knew the limitations of infancy. He knew the exhaustion of work. He knew the hunger of going without food. He knew the needs of the multitudes. He knew the tears of grief. He was for a time lower than the angels, Hebrews 2 tells us. He was rejected of men. He was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. Why? As the verse so simply says, that ye, through his poverty, might be rich. The one, as we said this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The one who was rich became poor, so that we in our poverty of sin could be rich in his salvation. So we could say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. This child and forever I am. <laughs> right? You know, it doesn't change forever. That is why at the end of this section, and we can't walk through all of chapter 9 in detail, but at the end of this section between 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, what does he say? Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Like, no matter how hard I try, I can't get it to you. Paul's going, it's unspeakable. To begin for us to describe, here's what God has done in Jesus Christ. That grace is extravagant. That grace should be what drives our giving. He gave sacrificially, and lovingly, and joyfully for my redemption and yours. Having looked at the exemplary giving of other believers, the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ, third, we see the expedient gift of the Corinthians. The expedient gift of the Corinthians, verses 10 through 15. You can summarize this with three statements. We'll start this way. Follow through on your commitment. Verses 10 and 11, follow through on your commitment. He says, and herein I give... My advice, that sounds an awful lot like we just referenced a moment ago, where he's saying, you know, I'm not commanding you, and here he's saying, here's my advice, because this is what's best, right? I, I can almost picture it in our mind today, where if someone's like, hey, you know what, I, I, I'm not like telling you you have to, because it's not my place, but I, I'm just suggesting that that need over there, you, you know, that need with one of our missionaries you really should consider giving to that. It's good for you. You want me to do what? Right? And again, the analogy breaks down a little bit in that this is the Apostle Paul, right? So it is different. But at the same time, Paul is saying, this is for your good. This is something that you should do. In part, because they had desired to do so and said they would do so previously. You Notice as verse 10 continues, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Like, we've talked about this for a while, so verse 11, now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. It's like, so a year ago we were talking about this and you expressed a desire. Now it's time to follow through. Again, I think we can identify with this, or maybe just me. There's points where it's like, you know, I feel burdened that maybe I should help with that, give to that, do that, grow in that area, and I have the best of intentions. And then it doesn't happen, <laughs> right? I mean, 
I even put it in my phone on my list of things to do. And I'm like, I need to do that. And then that list gets longer and longer and longer. Paul's saying, hey, look, this isn't just about good intentions. This should move to actual loving actions. This isn't just a passing burden, but an opportunity to follow through. You'll notice there, as he encourages them to follow through on their uh, commitments, that last phrase at the end of verse 11, there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. That thought gets echoed in verse 12, which brings us to our second thought in the expedient gift of the Corinthians. Give based on what you have. Give based on what you have, verse 12. For if there be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So he tells them, give out of what you have, because the expectation is not that you would go somehow beyond what you actually have. God, again, gives and he takes away, and whatever he entrusts you with is an opportunity to say, you know what, God, I'm going to give out of what you've entrusted me with. I mean, for the Macedonian believers that we looked at this morning, there wasn't much, but that wasn't the point. It wasn't at all about what's the quantity. But you go, you know what, God, out of what you've entrusted me with, here's how I want to give. Here's how I need to give. Here's what love has compelled me to do. Again, I found it insightful or it was challenging to my thinking in light of the articles that I shared with you this morning that just talk about debt. I'm thinking about Paul writing to the American church going, give out of what you have. And it's like, or out of what you've not already committed to pay others because you already got, but you haven't paid for yet. Right? Perhaps sometimes the reason we struggle just to see the grace of giving in our lives is because we feel that we don't have because we've already allocated funds that we have not yet earned. Instead of going, God, as you provide, as you supply with what I have, I'm going to choose to give out of that. And I'm not going to prioritize and give away those things to others. I'm simply going to live out of what you've given me to. I mean, it sounds novel today, but it's like, I'm just asking you to give out of what you already have, like you should spend out of what you already have. But we're used to living so differently in our country. It says, follow through on your commitment. Give based on what you have. And then third, understand that believers work together to meet needs. Understand that believers work together to meet needs. It's not all up to you. It's not all up to you. It's not all up to them. God works it out in God's economy. He gives to some and he uses others to supply needs and together he works it out according to his sovereign will. It's not up to us to figure out, well, how do I take care of all of this? So in verse 13 we read, I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want that their abundance may also be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. He actually takes them back to God's provision of manna for the Israelites and going, people gathered different amounts, but in what God provided, there was enough for everybody. And so he's saying to the Corinthian believers, I'm not telling you this so that other people are off the hook. I'm just telling you give because God will use what you 
give to provide their needs, and there may come a point in the future where God uses them to meet your needs. That's uh, however God chooses to see fit. Summarized it this way before, but as you walk through verses 13, 14, and 15, you could say they have a shared responsibility. God creates a situational equality, and it all coincides with what God's done through biblical history, verse 15. You know, you can think about it even the way our church gives to missions to go, we partner with other churches going, here's what we can do. Here's what God has led us to do. And that should be a function of the church body. Like, sometimes we lose sight of that. But you look at Acts 13, the church looks in their midst as to who to send out as missionaries. Okay? So there is a church decision. It's not just like, well, what does pastor think? Or what do the deacons think? It is a church body decision to go, here's what we're going to do. And we partner together with others to see funds provided to send people out here in the giving of relief. He's saying, work together with other believers to see God meet needs. I want to note, I don't often do this in a message, but I'm not going to kind of rush through at the end here and kind of burn through verses 16 to 24. But I would tell you there are some wonderful additional principles in verses 16 to 24 that touch on the issues of integrity and accountability that follow. The gifts are being received by multiple people. In fact, they're not just anybody. It's not just multiple people. They're tested people, and they're accountable people. It's like, so who are we going to send, and who's been proven? Already we looked this morning in 1 Corinthians 16 where he said, uh, you can choose someone to go with these funds. And certainly there are helpful principles for us to make sure that good financial stewardship is in place. But as we prepare to walk away from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I'd remind all of us this morning, evening who are believers, you are a recipient of grace. Unbelievable inexplicable, amazing grace that we don't get, we don't think about, we take up for granted far too often. God has favored you through Jesus Christ. He has favored me through Jesus Christ. So what's the outcome? As he directs, give. I don't know where, I don't know what that need is, but as as God prompts, as God burdens, give. And as you give, give generously. I praise God, I've seen that in our church family. It's, it's such a neat thing, an encouraging thing to me, a challenging thing. But give generously. Give joyfully, right? We, we talked about that more this morning, so I won't belabor it tonight, but give joyfully. Like, oh, man. Give lovingly. Going, I, I may not know, I don't necessarily need to know. All I know is God's laid this on my heart, so I'm going to follow through. Give lovingly. Why? Because you're first giving yourself to God. Like Maybe don't miss that little phrase that we began with this evening. I thought it was worth the priority of leaving off this morning to get to tonight. I'm not doing this simply because of how I feel. I'm doing this because my commitment is to God. And as God gives me stewardship, as God gives me burdens, as God's Spirit points me to opportunities, Let's pray. Father, it is, again, a humbling recognition that we see in your word that while Christ was rich, 
he became poor so that we might be reconciled to you, declared rich in the eternity that you provide. But Lord, we also recognize that you have given us stewardship here over a variety of resources. And recognizing the grace that you've shown to us, I pray that we would desire to be givers who give because of that same grace. Lord, I pray that we would each be sensitive to your spirit and that your spirit would direct us to opportunities that we can help in. God, again, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.